0: Most of our stocks are dropping faster than bricks. <laughs> Here's the reason you're not calm. You'll know you'll be crying if the stocks you're buying have a name that end in dot. Com, 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 All right, we are back. We hope that some of you were listening to the forum program yesterday from Michael Krasny's interview with Taylor Branch. His new book is titled The Clinton Tapes and talks about. uh well, how the authors put together 79 private conversations spanning eight years with Bill Clinton and went into, uh, into the book. It uh, made for some pretty riveting radio, revealing a lot of stuff I'd, I'd never heard. Uh, for example, on day one of the Clinton administration, it was decided by the New York Times that Bill Clinton's initial initiative would be gays in the military, the don't ask, don't tell thing turns out this was not the first thing on the clinton agenda but the new york times decided that uh, that's what they were going to go with and clinton clinton was immediately boxed in clinton also told taylor branch that the the biggest knockdown dragout argument he ever had in his entire political career was with the prime minister of pakistan when it was revealed that they'd snuck warplanes into the kashmir area from which they might attack india And this was getting them a lot of support at home. Clinton said, you can't do this, particularly since they were getting help in this move from none other than Osama bin Laden. Yes, we know that the Pakistani Intelligence Service has very good links to uh, Al-Qaeda, and uh, to the point where when Clinton flew to Pakistan, they landed Air Force One as a ruse as Clinton flew in in an unmarked plane. Apparently he met the volunteers (laughs) that... uh, Air Force One in knowing that there was a high risk that they would be attacked by none other than Osama bin Laden. By the way, apparently the Prime Minister gave in to Clinton's demands that they pull these airplanes out. He said that, you know, Musharraf is going to overthrow me and kill me if I do this. And sure enough, Musharraf did overthrow him when they did. Clinton had to lobby pretty hard to make sure that uh, Musharraf didn't execute him. Fascinating stuff and why Forum is an excellent, excellent radio program. But there was one, one curious exchange where uh, Branch was talking to Clinton about Osama bin Laden, and Clinton said, you know, it's really weird. He's this stateless figure with a lot of influence, a lot of money, uh, a lot of ability to get things done. He's, he's almost like a James Bond villain, which actually ain't a bad metaphor. It does allow me to seamlessly segue into our obituary for today, which is the death of the original James Bond villain, Dr. No. Yes, apparently Joseph Wiseman, a stage and screen actor who played the sinister title character in Dr. No in 1962, passed away this week at age 91. Wiseman apparently had been born in Canada and appeared in numerous Broadway plays, and some films such as Viva Zapata got cast as the mysterious villain opposite Sean Connery's 007, and and basically was there at the creation of the whole Bond franchise. He told the L.A. Times with a laugh in 1992, I had no idea it would achieve the success it did. As far as I was concerned, I I thought it might be just another grade B Charlie Chan mystery. Although he's part of movie history, his daughter said he viewed Dr. No with great disdain, saying he was horrified in later life because that's what he was remembered for. Stage acting was what he wanted to be remembered for. Weissman told the New York Times, a life being enacted on stage is a thing of utter fascination. And acting, it may begin out of vanity, but you hope it's taken over by something else. Adding (laughs) with a chuckle, I I hope I've climbed over the vanity hurdle. And uh, second obituary, the passing is noted here of Elizabeth Clare Prophet, the spiritual leader of the Church Universal and Triumphant. Which gained notoriety in the late 1980s for its followers' elaborate preparations for nuclear Armageddon. She died this week at age 70. Miss Prophet had advanced Alzheimer's disease, and no, we don't know whether she had Alzheimer's disease when she cooked up these ideas about Armageddon back in the 80s. But at that time, she did lead. She did lead the Park County Church, once boasted 50,000 members. And 20 years ago, her members started amassing assault rifles and armored vehicles in preparation for a nuclear missile strike. This brought her national notoriety and a certain amount of attention from the federal authorities. Obituaries noted that the church was still preparing for Armageddon in recent years and kept a bomb shelter for 750 people near Yellowstone National Park. You know, I gotta say, if I'm ever in a bomb shelter, I hope it's not with 749 other people. It was noted that the church declined in the nineteen nineties after a doomsday prediction failed to materialize, and her and Mrs. Prophet's charismatic presence faded. But it did live on with a smaller group of adherents and workers who, no doubt, were not dismayed by her failure to correctly predict Armageddon. Shades of eighteen forty four And by the way, if you're worried about Doomsday in 2012, we would refer you to the current edition of Sky and Telescope magazine. Turns out that even the Mayans did not predict the end of the world in 2012. This is a later interpretation by some Elizabeth Clare Prophet types. Anyway, we refer to the article for the details in case any of you were worried, but I have to quote a little bit from it. According to author E.C. Krupp, who is... uh, who works at the Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles. Broad interest in 2012 caught on beginning in 1987 in The Mayan Factor, Path Beyond Technology. Joseph Arguelles, an artist, poet, and visionary historian, according to his dust jacket, linked the Mayan calendar period with an impalpable beam from the center of the Milky Way galaxy. According to Arguelles, the Mayan knew when we entered this beam and when we would leave it, and they set their uh, calendar cycle to mark our passage through it accordingly. The beam, asserted Arguelles, operates as an invisible galactic life thread that link people, the planet, the sun, and the center of the galaxy. Noted E.C. Krupp rather dryly, neither Maya tradition nor modern astronomy supports a belief in any such beam. It stemmed instead from Arguelles' personal philosophy, which emphasizes the principle of harmonic resonance. Asking if that phrase sounded familiar, uh, the author asked if that phrase sounded familiar, noting that in 1987, Arguelles and his followers predicted with worldwide fanfare that August 16th of that year would bring a Maya-Galactic harmonic convergence, an event which turned into a global phenomenon with thousands gathering at Earth's so-called acupuncture points to create a synchronized and unified bio-electromagnetic collective battery. And if you went down to Sedona, Arizona to hold hands and, and chant, well, I'm sorry. Unfortunately, a movie, a big-screen Hollywood movie is coming out titled 2012, which is going to be big on special effects and short on, I would presume, everything else. But in case you're taken in by the pseudoscience that the planetary positions are going to cause trouble and you haven't learned your lesson about the so-called Jupiter effect from a few years ago, well, they print the planetary positions in the magazine and show that there's nothing unusual going to happen at the end of 2012. So yes, feel free to invest in the stock market once you've checked out the credentials of your financial planner. Anyway, I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for astronomy magazines, I have to admit. I read Sky and Telescope, Astronomy, and they just have such great pictures. And we talked on the show some, uh, some months back about the new Kepler spacecraft. Uh, there's some updates here. Kepler was launched to pick out some extrasolar planets uh, orbiting various stars in our galaxy, and it turns out it's working like you can't believe. As a test, Kepler's handlers pointed uh, the instrument to a tenth magnitude star in the constellation of Cygnus. It's known to have a transiting uh, Jupiter-like planet. It's already been discovered. But this instrument is so good that it measured not only the tiny dimming of the star's light as the planet crossed in front of it, but the, even much t- but the much tinier dimming when the planet passed behind the star and had its own light blocked by the star that was in front of it. It's hard for me to believe they can develop instruments that good, but apparently they can. And that kind of precision is indicating to people that uh, this Kepler the Kepler spacecraft should be able to detect transiting planets smaller than our Earth, which is what it was intended to do. You can bet that we're going to get some very interesting data there about, uh, about, about planets and smaller planets orbiting other stars. And we do expect to get that data well into the year 2013 and beyond. And a guy that I like is Bob Berman. He has a column titled Strange Universe in Astronomy Magazine which I think we'll uh, close the show with. In a column from the October uh, issue of Astronomy titled, A Dozen Cool Facts, we have uh, the following selections. Number one. Neutrons live forever when they're snuggled inside atoms. They still look fresh and have that new car smell after 10 billion years. In fact, they outlast stars. But if a neutron escapes its atom, it pays a bizarre price for its freedom. Running loose, the average neutron decays and vanishes in ten and a half minutes. What's the lesson here? Well, better stay home with your parents. And here's one I need your help on, dear listener. This one sounds like BS to me, and I, I don't know. According to Bob Berman, rainbows don't cast reflections. He says they can't because they're not real objects. Adding that we all know from horror movies that vampires don't have a reflection in a mirror, but neither do rainbows. Okay, folks, I need your help. You see a rainbow out there, hold up a mirror. I want to know. Th- this, one, this one doesn't sound right. I mean, it really doesn't sound right, but you know, let's apply the scientific method and test it out, shall we? And we'll try and talk about the physics of raindrops and the internal reflections that lead to rainbows uh, when we have more than a minute. <laughs> and here's one I have no doubts correct, but is a real weird one. Kepler's out there looking for another Earth, but what about another sun? Bob Berman notes that of the 1,000 nearest stars within three dozen light years of of us, only one matches our sun's temperature, size, and luminosity and has the same precise spectral class, which if you're keeping track is a G2V, which means it's a main sequence star where you find most stars with a surface temperature of about 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, where is this twin? Oddly enough, it's the nearest naked eye star which is Alpha Centauri A, unfortunately not visible from where we live here in California. Listeners in Hawaii or South can see Alpha Centauri, but we can't. But Bob Berman asked the very good question, what are the chances of that? Of the thousand nearest stars, the one that's the perfect match of our own sun is the closest star? Mr. Merlin points out the odds are probably at least one in a thousand. I don't know. I don't trust coincidences like that. I, I, I just wonder could it be that our sun and Alpha Centauri are in some way linked? And no, I don't mean as soulmates or solar mates if you're going to be a punster. I realize the answer is according to how, you know, stars form, uh, that shouldn't be, but dang, that's a really strange coincidence. Anyway, fun stuff. But as much fun as we're having, we're out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett, and you've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time.